We really think European butter from France is the best butter. And our friend, the expert baker and best-selling cookbook author David Leibovitz agrees. Check out our recent episode with David to find out how he cooks with quality butter. And for recipes, tips, and cooking advice, go to tasteeurope.com. It's one of those stories being in the right place at the right time and saying yes to the thing that you're not so sure you can do, which I think is a big life lesson. Just say yes to the thing that you're not so sure you can do and figure it out. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. How do I introduce Melissa Clark, a prolific cookbook author, New York Times columnist, and one of the most respected food writers around? Well, first, you must know that one of my absolute favorite cookbooks in the entire world is her 2017 book, Dinner Changing the Game. I cook from it almost monthly. It's one of my favorite books around. On this episode of The Taste Podcast, we talk about what inspires her weekly recipe column in the paper of record. And our latest book, Dinner in One, may be one of her most personal books yet. We also go back to her days collaborating with great chefs including Daniel Ballou, David Boulay, and Claudia Fleming. I hope you enjoy getting to know Melissa Clark a little bit better here. Melissa Clark. Welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thank you for having me. Oh, we have a lot to cover. I, I love hearing your voice on Splendid Table. I love reading your cookbooks. I love cooking from your work in the New York Times. But it's just so nice to see you. It's so nice to see you too, Matt. It's just so rare that we get to see each other these days. And it's just it's very comforting to be in the same room just sitting right across and having a conversation like normal people, right? Not on Zoom. Not on <laughs> Zoom. There's no buffering. There's no pixelating. You know, we, we're here IRL. Let's start with sheet pan harissa chicken with leeks, potatoes, and lemon yogurt, showered with herbs. This is a recipe that appeared on page 51 of your 2017 book, Dinner, Changing the Game. For me, this is honestly the recipe that I brought most to dinner parties. I brought it in gallon bags to dinner parties. Like, not really like dinner parties, but like when I'm helping cook. Mm -hmm. I've given it for gifts. I've gifted people who are ill or who needed food. The, a bag of this harissa chicken. I've made it at home in several kitchens, homes I've had, many homes, whatever. <sighs> this is like my favorite recipe. It's on the cover of that book. How, can we just like do like an oral history of it right now? <laughs> Absolutely. I, but first of all, thank you. I'm glad. I mean, it's a great, I love that recipe too. I'm so happy to hear that it's a hit with your, with, with your whole, you know, everybody in Sphere. your life as well. Um, so, okay. So how did it start? You know, chicken and potatoes, right? Chicken and potatoes, it's just one of those um, combinations that you want to – you always want to eat that. It it never gets old. It's always delicious. Um, I am always looking for ways to tweak the classic way of of making a whole roast chicken, you know, with potatoes on the bottom of the pan, which is how I grew up eating them, right? So you have to – you do it. It's this easy – um, one, it wasn't a one sheet pan dinner back then. It was just like a roasting pan dinner. Mm-hmm. And my mother always did the carrots, potatoes, onions in the bottom of the, the drippings arrived. Exactly. Yep. And then you put the chicken on top. So that's that just is the foundation of this dish is that combination. But um, since I've fell in, fallen in love with my sheet pan, as everybody <laughs> knows, I love a sheet pan. They have changed my life. I find the, just the way that they um, conduct heat makes 
food just so delicious. There's so much more caramelization than you get in a typical roasting pan, which has deep sides. So I started um, playing around with the different combinations of chicken and potatoes on a sheet pan. And I did this recipe for the New York Times. I did an early iteration um, a couple of years before dinner the dinner cookbook came out Mm -hmm. and it was a simplified version. It was, well, actually it was, I think it was not simplified. I think it was a little more complicated actually. I think I, for the harissa chicken and dinner, I streamlined it. I can't really remember. Did you have the lemony yogurt element? I don't think I had lemon yogurt. I think I just had salted yogurt Yeah. and I had arugula on top and I didn't, and so it was a slightly different dish and it was a little fussier. And often what I'll do is the way that I write cookbooks, part of my process is that um, for my column in the New York Times, I'll, I have a few weeks to develop a recipe, right? So I, I develop it up to a certain point. It's great. Sometimes it's mm-hmm. perfect. Sometimes mm, no notes. Well, yes, um, <laughs> but sometimes it's like, okay, you know what? This could be better. And with the case of that arugula potato chicken in the New York Times with the yogurt, it I, it needed a little more tweaking, mm-hmm. and then that is what I published in dinner, and I feel like that's when I nailed the dish. You know, that's the thing about working under deadline, right? When you're when you're a writer and you're, you're yeah. a recipe developer, you're working under deadline, you get it as good as you can get it up until your deadline, and then you have to stop. You have to cut base. <laughs> Sometimes it's 85%. Exactly. Yeah, and you have to do it, yeah. But the thing about a cookbook is then I can just push it to the next 15% and get it perfect. So I mean, that's what fingerling happened. was the best choice possible for that. Yeah, and I think I didn't use that for mm. the other one. I don't remember. I should look at that recipe again. I should have looked at it before uh, before I sat down here. But I know that it's um so that's how it happened. That was the the process and um it's a dish even I still I never cook for my own recipes. Never, except mm. for that recipe and my red oh. l- and my red lentil soup. Those are the two that you will actually, you know, bring to the family when you're not developing. You'll bring like, oh, bring in an old classic. Yeah, those are two. Um, ah. You know, I mean, I, co- I mean, I cook a ton. Obviously, I cook every night. I'm always, I rarely follow recipes. I'm just cooking. Yeah. But those two, I follow because I just like them. Yeah, <laughs> I like them the I way they are. I'm glad we share that love of Melissa Clark recipe. <laughs> 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 Let's zoom back a bit. You grew up in Brooklyn. I want to know a little bit about your household growing up. What was food like in the Clark household? My parents were great cooks. They were um, Julia Child disciples. They uh, they loved to cook, and um, you know the food. They cooked a lot for dinner parties. They cooked a lot of French fancy French food for dinner parties. I got some of that food as leftovers, you know, the next day. <laughs> um, but really, what I loved, I loved just the simple dinners that they they cooked really simply during the week but it was always fresh it was always good there were no cans of soup in my house um, unless we ate a can of soup which was perfectly fine but they didn't do like my mom my parents um, my mother my grandmother was big into like convenience foods big into you know Mm. sort of 1950s housewife like she did a lot of jello and she did a lot of you know as was like the rage then and you had to be in trend so you were obviously cooking from boxes because it was the first time any home cooks were getting boxes exactly like this quick to her was you know, yeah. um, but my mother. So my mother didn't want to do that, and so she was very. It was a pointed departure for her, and for and my father, of course, um, grew up in a kosher home, mm. so it was a little bit different. And but he never he never started cooking until ju- the whole Julia Child thing. He and, and then he and my mom started cooking together, and he started baking bread, and she would cook the savory foods, and it was just. I mean, really simple things, but really fresh. It was, um, you know, it was just like simple steak, but we'd always have this. I remember when I was a kid, and this was in the early 90s, we mm-hmm. had watercress salads all the time. Like, who had watercress salads <laughs> back a, then? You know, and it, they, and so, so things, French yes. is clearly showing. Did you, did they, did your parents go to 
like, did they have go to cooking classes? No. no? no. I mean, I think they just watched. They, they watched, watched a lot it. of like programming. You know, they watched Galloping Gourmet. They watched oh Julia Child. And they wa- yeah, they watched all of that. I love that. Um, and you know, my dad would um, was learning. We had a walk, and he was learning how to make some stir fried, um, like stir fried, stir frying and bread baking were his mm. two things. Um, so. But it was just always fresh, and that and it's an important lesson. And then on Saturday, on Sundays, we had bagels and locks. <laughs> what neighborhood were you in? Um, so it was called Flatbush when I was growing up. Yeah, you know, much to my great embarrassment. But now it's <laughs> rebranded itself as Dimmis. Oh, okay, Dimmis Park. So yeah, it was called Flatbush. A very Jewish neighborhood, though, right? Yeah, yeah very, very Jewish. And those locks and bagels are probably the best in the country, you'd say. They from were. New York? I mean, you know, like your childhood nostalgia. Bagels and locks taste better than anything you could get now. But <laughs> I mean, I still am. I don't know if they're better than what you can get now. I feel like Russ and Daughter still does it for me. Yeah, I agree. Do, do you do you subscribe to uh, there being a bagel outside of a New York City bagel? Uh, you know, I keep reading about those California bagels. They say. I, I have not been. I have not. <laughs> I but you know what? I'm open to it. I'm open. I, I'll eat a delicious bagel from anywhere. Yeah, me too. So I have to ask you, Melissa. There was a time when you're working at a restaurant front of house. And you were working with a young coat check employee named Mariah Carey. Ah, yes, the Mariah Carey story. So I was in college. I was at Barnard. And I got a a job as a um, a hostess at a restaurant called Sports. It was a sports bar in the Upper West Side. That's called Sports. Sports. And let's just put it this way. Um, when I got the job, I didn't know it was a sports bar. They told me it was a continental restaurant. It hadn't. It was in the middle of construction. I applied for this job. I got it, and I met you know the chef, and I was interested in food and restaurants. Continental restaurant. Oh, that sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> then I found out it was a sports bar. So that was that was a thing, and it was a, a bi level restaurant. So there was an upstairs. So as a hostess, I had to take people to tables, running up and down the stairs all night long. This was my job. The phones were always ringing, and. <laughs> There was a coat checker named Mariah, um, who was just Mariah before she was Mariah Carey, you know, to me. And I would, I would always say, you know, I'd be running up and down. I'd be like, Mariah, can you just answer the phone? Can you help me out? Can you? And she had, she used to, like, you know, she'd have her her headphones on, plugged into her Walkman way back when. She'd be sitting there singing. And oh my be, goodness! And it's just like she was like sort of half in the world and half in her own head and her in her music and her songs even back then. But I would get really annoyed because I'd be like, <laughs> the phone is ringing. Yeah. Um, but my boyfriend at the time worked at a sport at a non-sports bar, just a bar next door, and he was a singer-songwriter. Mm-hmm. And he said to me, he said, "Oh, you know, Mariah's got an amazing voice. Do you think you could give her my tape of my <laughs> my music?" I was like, "No." Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I regret oh, that. Sorry. You regret that. Yeah, Sorry, buddy. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, oh buddy. my gosh. And have you interacted with her? No, now? of course not. <laughs> You've not. I want. I feel like that reunion needs to happen. I don't know. That was a many, a many, ago. many years ago. And honestly, she really was like at that point so into her music. And I don't know that she would, you know, like but, I knew her because. I wanted something from her, but yeah. I don't know that she... <laughs> Let's talk about a cooking class. I'm sorry, a food writing class that you took um, early in your career. And it, 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 did this kind of jumpstart your interest in food writing, this class that you took? Yeah. I mean, so, okay, this was... I was. I always knew I wanted to be a writer ever sure. since I was a kid. I was writing stories, and it was a, something that I, I, I just thought, well, you know, except for that brief moment in high school when I thought I wanted to be a lawyer, which... Mm. Very LA but, Law, were you watching some TV? And like, no, yeah. I just was like, I just thought like I was good at debating, I was good at arguing. Okay. And so my mother was like, Oh, you should be a lawyer. Mm. It's like, okay. And you know, when your mom says that to you, yeah. and you're like, Oh, yeah, okay, I can sure. do that. Um, <laughs> but then I discovered writing, and I thought I was going to, um, I didn't know what I was going to write, but food was always the metaphor I used to tell my story, no matter what. So uh. if I was writing about, you know, like in college, I'd write papers about 
early modern European history, but somehow I would find the food angle. Or I remember I wrote my thesis on um, Don Quixote, and I wrote about – the food, uh, Sancho Panza, and what he ate the whole during the whole wow. no, you know novel. So I was always looking for this the food angle, um, and it, it. I took this food writing class with Betty Fussell, who's a very famous. She was um, a very famous food writer. I don't know if people know her as well. Right Glad now. you mentioned Betty Fussell. It's cool because she is definitely a legend. In the She's game. a legend. If you if you know um, food writing, you've probably read Betty Fussell. She is a brilliant intellectual, gifted storyteller. Um, and she came and taught this food writing class, and it, I was her star pupil. <laughs> it yeah. was just, we spoke the same language. We used the same metaphors. We looked at the world in the same way. Wow. And I thought, okay, well, this is obviously what I want to do because this is just how – you know, it's, it's amazing when you can find a career that already aligns with how you see the world. It's amazing when you unlock that. It's like a key in the lock. Is there an assignment that you recall from Betty's class that made you really think, oh, this could be a career? Um, well, I remember that we had to do a – like a restaurant review of our Thanksgiving dinner. Oh, so taking that point of view, the, so, the reviewer. Well, point we of view. yeah. Well, we had all we had all kinds of different assignments. You know, we did Fun. different genres of food writing, but that was one. And I thought, <gasps> so I, I really liked. I, what I liked is deconstructing. I like to take a minute and deconstruct the meal and think about how was it put together and why did we make the choices that we made for this Thanksgiving meal. So it was a lot of context, uh, and then there was, I you know one of. The, day she brought in this chocolate cake. And I do this, I've, I've, mm. I've done this with my students. I've taught, a Colum- I've taught some food writing classes mm. at Columbia, and I've done this with my students, um, although it doesn't work anymore because now they all know the secret. But <laughs> she brought in this chocolate cake, and we had to guess a secret ingredient. And I knew immediately that it was mayonnaise. And I knew that because um, I had read about a mayonnaise cake, and I had re- I'd never had one, but it fit the description of what I had read. And she said there was a secret ingredient, something normally not found in cakes. So I put two and two together. And that was also so thrilling to get that right. Yeah, you were like the – you raised your hand and got the right answer. Yeah, I was like, oh, I know this. I, I, I'm there. I'm there. But it, and it was also – well, I mean, so what it was, it was being able to taste it, being able to identify something, being able to fit a description to a dish, but also understanding the context and the history behind it. So yeah. all of that coming together was just like, oh, my God, I totally want to do this all the time. <laughs> does is it, does mayonnaise add um, a moisture to the, the actual cake? Does it add like is it more of a texture? Well, so it's a depression era recipe when you couldn't necessarily get fresh eggs and oil, right. but mayonnaise was something was something that was cheaper for whatever reason. And so you the you know mayonnaise is an emulsion of eggs and oil. So if you use that in your cake, you don't need to add the eggs and the oil. So it's just a great. It's like a substitution. It's a great – yeah. And I mean it makes – it's also easy. And it makes a really good cake. Plus, you know what? It has a lot of salt. And it turns out when you add a lot of salt to a chocolate cake, it's good. No doubt. (laughs) And so this – we're going to skip some of your career because we have – I want to talk about Dinner in One and and some of your cookbook writing career. But I would like to talk about your collaboration because you started out as a collaborator working with Boulou, with Boulet, Claudia Fleming, many others. Let me ask you – how did you get into the world of of translating recipes from chefs? It was all, you know, being in the right place at the right time. Someone came to me and said, "Hey, do you want to write a cookbook with Sylvia Woods from Sylvia it's up in Harlem?" Wow, that was the, that was the first. That was the first collaboration yeah. I ever did, and um, I had done a few little cookbooks before that, but I had never done a collaboration. And a friend of mine was working with Sylvia, doing some some consulting, and they had a cookbook draft that she that was competent, but it wasn't. She's like, there was no voice there. Mm. And so she said, you know, you're a writer. Can you voice this up? And so I spent 
um, you know, six months I was living in Brooklyn. I would go take the train up to Harlem and I would, I talked to um, Sylvia and her whole family, her amazing people. I tape recorded everything. Mm. And as I was transcribing, I got their voices in my head and, and just created, um, just wrote, you know, what they said, but polished it and condensed it. And it was so great because I learned so much. I mean, and not just about, you know, her recipes, which I learned, you know, I learned about the food, but I also learned about her childhood. And I learned about um, everything that she had to do to get to where she was, you know, her background. And being inside her head and really, really hearing her was so exciting to get, you know, you get really close to another person in in a short way. Um, Yeah. And I, I love that. And I thought, well, okay, I, this is what I want to do because I love character. I love building characters. I love trying to understand what makes people tick. Uh, I would like to say that both of my parents are psychiatrists. <laughs> just, <laughs> so that was sort of like, it's like that family. A I mean, child like of two there. psychiatrists. I am. Yes, yeah. that is true. Um, and, I, and I also love to understand, you know, there's so much more. When you create a recipe, when you write a cookbook, when you open a restaurant, you know, you're giving so much of yourself in different ways. Yeah. And to be able to put that together um, – it was it's it is still so it is the one thing about working at the New York Times that I miss is that I cannot I'm not allowed to do that you know because I objectivity report. yeah I report yeah. in the industry so obviously I can't do. do that and I'm that's the thing I miss the most yeah I want to get into some of your reporting because I think some of our listeners may only know you as a recipe developer and you know write you write nice head notes but you have a real like journalistic background and you have you've written some wonderful journalism how many cookbooks have you done at this point um 46 46 wow 40, 46. That's I had forty one, so forty six is the right answer. Um, let's just go top three. Let's just do it. Of top my three. cookbooks. Yeah, let's just do it. Top three. Um, I mean, dinner in French it, because it's so yes. personal. Yeah, like, it's a great book. Twenty nineteen. Um, 20, 20, 2020. 2020. <laughs> yeah, March twenty twenty. As a oh. matter of fact, remember what else happened then? Oh yeah, wonderful. <laughs> Must have been cool to put that book out then. Yeah, that was. There was a lot of people say, "Oh, you know, your book party was the last thing I did before lockdown." Dinner in French, right. So dinner in French, um, talk about that a bit. Yeah, so that was my, you know, my childhood was being the daughter of two psychiatrists. My parents had the month of August off because traditionally psychiatrists took the month of August off. Why this was a tradition, I don't know. Thank goodness they don't do that anymore, that people, they stagger their vacation so that if you have a mental breakdown in August, you don't have to worry. You know, you'll find somebody. But back then- Summer's tough, man. Summer's tough. You need help. You know, I mean, it's hot. You get grouchy. But- um, so we would ha- so they both had this whole month off and we would house exchange in France. We would exchange our Brooklyn Dittmas house <laughs> and go all over the country and stay in different people's houses and uh, and cook and eat. And so, you know, my parents, um, we, I mean, they cooked during the year, but they didn't cook a lot. And we didn't we never ate dinner together. Like, I mean, they cooked a lot, but my mother would leave the food for us mm. on a hot. We had this hot tray and she and my dad worked late. So yeah. my sister and I ate a lot, you know, by ourselves in front of the TV, and um, which was fine with me as a kid. You know, I was like, oh, I get to watch TV when I eat. Yeah. But um, being in France, we ate together, and it was something, and we cooked together. And it was the only time in my childhood that we did that as a family, and that was really meaningful. And so to be able to write about that experience yeah. and in this book, and I always say that – I, you know, I grew up in Brooklyn. I learned how to cook in France. Right. And and you were th- living th- throughout the country, right, in different places? In different places, yeah. yeah. That's right. Uh, an aside, are you going to France this summer? We are not going to France this summer. In August, taking the month off. You know, we never do that. <laughs> I've never done that in my life. Wait, but, really? 
Except uh, when I was a kid. No, yeah, I haven't. Yeah. Well, first of all, I can't get a month off. No, of course. You're on deadline the whole time when I get to that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but we're taking two weeks and going to Italy or a week and a half and going to Italy. Oh, very fun. Yeah. Okay. So book two, number two, what's number two of your, oh, I'm doing top three, Melissa um, Clark books by Miss Melissa I mean, Clark. I do. I love dinner. I mean, I love dinner, okay. dinner changing the game. You know, that was that book I poured myself into. That is the food that I love cooking. It was so it was just so fun to write down all the things, all the things that I had been making. And, and um, also, you know, the challenge of that book was the idea behind dinner changing the game is that these are familiar dishes and I'm going to put a twist on them, but I'm also going to streamline them, yeah. you know, and I'm going to make them simple because I want to be able to get people to cook maybe a little more than they might want to, but the result is so worth it. So it has, it just had to be worth it in the end. So so well said. I mean, it's why I love that book so much and why it's really splattered and stained because I, I think it is very, very tightly written and the like ingredient lists are not demanding. I think you're doing something that's very difficult, making it seem it's, it is easy, but it's actually interesting to cook. So, yeah. Yeah, uh, that's the goal. That's the goal. And then the third, gosh, I mean... I have to say Dinner in One, which is about to come out. I yeah. mean, I mean, I mean, Claudia Fleming, you know, the last chorus is very, very special to me. That, that one. one is very special to me, too. But I mean, I think of that more as her book, not my book. And we just got that back into into print, which is yeah. cool. It was out of print. We have a great story that was uh, on taste that I'll link to about the, that book's long history. But one of the classics in American pastry books. Yeah, and easily. it's a brilliant book. And Claudia is a brilliant, wonderful human being. But I don't think of that as my book. That's her book. So even though it, like I'm counting it in my 45, it's yeah. not like so many of the books I co-authored um, – I mean, I've co-authored over two dozen books. Yeah. So half of them are co-authored books. So, but the, yeah, so they're not my books. Is there a collaboration that got away, meaning you really wanted to work on it, but you couldn't? Early on, Alfred Portali did not pick me to write his cookbook. Uh, oh, wow. So there was that. But um, no, for the most part, for the most part, I I got the cookbooks that I went for, you know, yeah. early, for the collaboration. So you remember the ones you just didn't get. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> like, oh, Alfred Portelli. Alfred Portelli. No. His loss. You know? <laughs> um, let's talk about the Dinner In series because you've got Dinner In French, Dinner In an Instant, Dinner In One, which is out soon. So where does this Dinner In series go and what does it represent? It represents getting dinner on the table as easily and deliciously as possible. Cool. And all of those books have that. That's the goal, right? Um, so Dinner In French, you know it's going to be a little more um, – special occasion just a little bit more because you know you think of, of French food but what I mean really my goal with dinner in French was actually it's special occasion just because we don't think of French food as something that French people eat every single night for dinner but they do so that was really that <laughs> the goal with that um dinner in an instant so I didn't think I was going to ever like Instant Pots. I'm not a gadget person, mm-hmm. but I wrote about Instant Pots for the New York Times. I reported a piece and I really fell in love. It was with like them. 2017. It was early. It right? was early. Yeah. And I just love I was like, wow, this thing is amazing. Yeah. And I'd always used pressure cookers. But yeah. every time I used a, a stovetop pressure cooker, I was a little afraid. And I think many people share that feel, you know, yeah. the worry of like the pea soup on the ceiling. Like, you know, you hear yeah. the stories, right? Terrible stories. Yeah. Uh, Burns of the third degree. Exactly. Yeah. So um but I love the efficiency and I love um I like the set it and let it cook aspect of it. So I really went hard, um, fell hard for my Instant Pot. So dinner in an instant um, and comfort in an instant are 
showcasing my love of the Instant Pot. Uh, and they're recipes that, again, like you can make this for dinner. Mm-hmm. And I, so, okay, so why dinner? Why is the dinner this important concept? Is because that's when we cook. Like we don't cook lunch. We put together lunch. We throw together lunch. We yeah. make lunch. You know, maybe on a weekend we'll cook breakfast. But what do we have to cook every night is yeah. dinner. And dinner is the central thing for in all of our lives. It is, for some people me included it is the joy of our day every day in dinner um changing the game i write that making dinner every night is like my weekend that's my little bit of weekend on a weekday because so I well love said it. it really is it's that moment where you can really just uh, escape all the other deadlines and pressures and, yeah. and actually decompress i think of cooking that way it's not always that way though it's sometimes it can be a little bit stressful but yeah. You do it enough, you feel like it is a, a bit of a relief, right? Well, I mean, I think if you love to cook, then yeah. most of the time it's going to be. But if you don't love to cook, and there is a lot of people out there who don't love to cook, but they still have to get dinner on the table, mm-hmm. and it, they think of dinner as a problem. And so what I want to help them with is I'm solving your problem for you. I just t- tapped on the table, and you told me not to. Oh, Sorry. you know what? Tapping on the table <laughs> is, is, is okay if it's you, and it's very light. You know, I didn't hear it, so you're okay. good. So let's. Uh, where does it go? Where does this actual this series go? Oh, I don't know. You think I think ahead? Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> what about a book, then, that is not home cooking and is more journalistic third person writing about something happening. You've written, you wrote this beautiful profile of Claudia Rodin. You wrote this beautiful story about uh, sustainable seafood in, in, I believe, in Maine, mm-hmm. oysters. So you're you're a reporter, and I, I really think that our listeners should should actually look at Melissa Clark's reporting and be like, top notch. I mean, you probably don't have time to do a lot of it with your other demands, but would you write a cookbook where you actually report on something? Um, Not, it's not top priority right yeah. now. I don't know Honest that, answer. I mean, I don't know that I have a subject that I'd want to immerse myself in for that long. I mean, the beauty of writing a reported article for the Times is that I get to immerse myself for a month, you know, yeah. or maybe like over the course of two or three months, but not full, full on, you know, like I dip my toes in and I love learning new things and I love learning about other people and what they're doing and mm-hmm. what they're cooking. And um, so that's th- reporting to me is thrilling. But I also like the brief scope of it. And to write a reported book is a commitment that is years long, a a dedication that um, I don't see myself wanting, I mean, in the near future. Maybe it's going to change. You know, people change all the time. And maybe I'll find something where I think, okay, I need to pursue this story, and here I am. But not right now. But articles are the beauty. I mean, this is the beauty of articles. You you, you get to dive into this world but not have to commit like 80,000 words. And we had Julia Moskin on the podcast in 2018, and I want to ask you the same question is, do you have a long list of features that you're working on? Is it always in motion? It is always in motion. I'm always working on things. Um, uh, Yeah, no, I'm thinking about a lot of different things. And so... What are you thinking about? Give us a teaser. Um, okay, so I'm working on a big salt piece. Amazing. Because I think that we still don't understand salt, even though, you know, we we have written about it. Um, many people have written about it. I mean, of course, Samin's amazing. You know, salt, fat, acid, heat takes on salt in a big way. But there's still questions about how, like, basic questions um, that aren't answered. Like, why... Are there different kinds of kosher salt? Why are there different, you know, um, textures? Why? How is sea salt made? Do you know how sea salt is made? Do you know how the crystals are formed? Right. Like, this is the stuff that I don't know that I'm fascinated by. Yeah. So I want to go in depth and write about that. Um, and so it'll be uh, – and also a little history of salt. I mean, we know about, you know, the word salary um, comes from the word salt. We the, Salt is just a very rich topic to um, – 
to again immerse myself in for a few weeks, for a few months. And it's then, so great I mean, to do that, yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, there are a lot of books written on it, so one could write eighty thousand words on it, but I don't have to. I can write twenty five hundred words and it, or three thousand maybe, and it's going to be. Um, I think it's going to be interesting and doable for me in a few months. <laughs> I can't wait to read. It. I think Morton's versus Diamond Crystal and like choosing the right one is such a topic of conversation always. It's perennial. And why yeah. can't you get Diamond Crystal ever? Why is Morton's why does Morton's have the, you know, the the monopoly on salt? It's such a uh, Diamond I'm Diamond Crystal all the way and I buy that on Amazon because sometimes you cannot find it you in stores. You cannot find it Coast. in stores. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm I So why is that, Matt? I'm going to find out. Yeah. I'm going to get to the bottom of that. Yeah, I remember <laughs> once did you did you do you remember when there was like a shortage of Diamond Crystal when it was like on Twitter yes. that Diamond Crystal was going out of yeah, business or I remember something? that. Yeah. <laughs> So what else is on your list? Give us one more feature. Okay, so this is exciting too. So I'm very interested in sustainable it all issues of sustainability in food, but yeah. particularly sustainable seafood because yeah. um why am I so interested in sustainable seafood? You know, it's just it's you know when you start researching something and you're like, "Oh my god, but there's more." And yet yeah. there's more. Um I feel like the way that we eat out of the ocean obviously is not sustainable. The way we misuse the ocean is not sustainable. But yet seafood could be a big part of our diets. It could feed much more of the world if we change the way that we produce it, right? So one of the things that's on the horizon is land-based aquaculture. So aquaculture is hugely problematic, especially salmon aquaculture. Much maligned in the press. Farm-raised, you just never really want to eat that food, exactly. eat that version of a fish. But yeah. there's, but that's what we are, we are going to have no choice because exactly. there is not going to be a wild ocean that we can sustainably fish from, right? So we have to have aquaculture. But how do you do it sustainably? I've written about scallops. I've written about shellfish and oysters and mussels. And um, but they're, those are still in the ocean, but they're very sustainable. But what about big fish? What about salmon? What about other types of um, aquaculture? So there is a movement to, and shrimp actually is a big issue here. So there's been a lot of people developing basically giant fish tanks full of fish. So how do you do that in a sustainable way? And there's new technology that is helping um, uh, helping fish farmers create sustainable, energy-efficient ways it's to— It's so fascinating. There's a guy so up in Newburgh, New York, doing some cool sustainable seafood in, called Gulo, I think. Oh, okay. Doing, sh- doing shrimp up there. There's a bunch of shrimp because yeah. shrimp is, shrimp are really easy to do exactly. that way. Exactly. Love that. The problem is the um, the waste. So anyway, but so as you can—I'm working on this story. There are people doing it. Can you imagine doing salmon in tanks? This is happening. Yeah. It's happening in Maine. It's happening in—they're um, building it in Maine. It's happening in Florida. So— Anyway, that's I can't wait to read that because I think it's it's it is a beat. I've, as I mentioned, you had that great story about oysters recently. Let's talk about your recipe writing from the New York Times. I guess my question is like, what's it like being on deadline basically all the time? Because you're coming out every week with a recipe. What is that feeling like? I compartmentalize so well. It's like when I'm <laughs> under deadline, I'm like freaking out because I'm under deadline, right? But that's only a f- few days a week, and then the other few days a week. What deadline? Yeah. It's, what I deadline? Yeah. If I didn't compartmentalize, I could not have this job. Does it make vacation, like, worth it when you're on those, like, weekly deadlines? Um, a little more? I'm always working, though. Even when I'm on vacation, I'm like, I can't stop. Like, in a yeah. way. It, but it's okay because I like my work. But I love not having the deadline. I mean, when I don't have a deadline, um, when I'm on vacation and I don't have to file. So that little, you know, I say I compartmentalize, right? So the little bit of my life where I'm not under deadline because in my head I'm not becomes longer. 
Does that get you out of bed, though, just like knowing you have work to do and this exciting job? Because you, you have a real passion and love of cooking. Yes. Does it get you out of bed every day? Well, I get out of bed every day early anyway because I just can't sleep past 6.30. I don't know what happened. Uh, age? I can't sleep I past 6. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, it's a yeah, wonderful so I get up. Age. I, I, it is great. It is great. But, um, and also, I, I don't know if you can tell, but um, I'm. I'm a, I'm an active person. Like I, I I'm anxious. I'm active. I move a lot. Yeah. So it's just like lying in bed and just no. I can't do it. My whole body rebels. Let's talk about the New York Times. How did you arrive there? How did you How did you start your column? Like what What's the path to the New York Times? Again, it's one of those stories being in the right place at the right time and saying yes to the thing that yeah. you're not so sure you can do, which I think is a big life lesson. Just say yes to the thing that you're not so sure you can do and figure it out. Um, and that's what I did. I um, I knew a – I mean it's a, a a friend of mine was working for um, the former editor of – this was even before there was a dining section. Mm. There was a living section in the New York Times um, and she was working for one of the editors in the living section helping him write a cookbook with Pierre Frenet who used to be a columnist and he wrote a column called The 60 Minute We wrote Frenet. a beautiful story about Pierre Frenet. Oh. I'll link to it. Amazing. Yeah. yeah I want to – oh gosh, I missed that story. Yeah, yeah. I'll send it to you. It's great. Yeah. Um, and so Rick, this uh, man named Rick Flast, he was an editor. He was working on Pierre's book, and my friend Anna was his assistant. And she got it because of someone she knew. And then she went to India for three weeks oh. and said, do you want to you know, take my job while I'm gone? And so I met Rick, and I took her job while she was gone. And then a few years later, Rick started the dining section and called me and asked me if I would like to freelance a little column, just like <laughs> a little Q&A um, called the food chain, and this was before it was easy. You know, before this was pre-WikiHow. Like you couldn't. Uh, Nineteen ninety-eight. I looked yeah. back at those yeah. food chain stories last night when I was prepping for this, and it's like cool shit. It's like definitely really pertinent, pressing questions you answer. Yeah. yeah. So people would ask me food questions, and yeah. I, I would they'd actually write letters, like physical <laughs> letters, and they'd put a stamp on it, and they'd mail it in a mailbox, and I would open them up. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. And so that's how I started. And then um, editors came and went. Um, and then in 2012, Susan Edgerly was the then editor of the dining section. And she um, asked me to come on staff. Okay. And so then that's what really kicked off the, the column. Well, the column actually was a little bit before that. So I was freelancing from Got 1998 it. to 2007 was my first column. Interesting. Wow. But it's been like an on- – it's like probably the longest running food column in your times. I think Pierre Frenet might be longer. Oh, might know. be longer. Okay. I, actually, good question. I should ask. Um, I think I am longer than Mark Bittman at this point. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, this constant deadline we discussed, but I guess, can we get into, like, how you actually, ha- you know, organize your thoughts for these recipes every week? Because they really, they come fast. And, like, anyone who's developed a recipe knows or has cooked a lot, it's, like, very hard to nail a recipe. Are you working on like 10 recipes at the same time? Absolutely. Yeah. You cannot – if I worked week to week, I wouldn't be able to do what I do. Right. The trick is to always be – to have things in motion all the time. Um, So the first thing I do is, you know, to have a conversation with my editor and we figure out what is the right thing at the right time because timing of a recipe is really important. You know, you don't want to do a fresh peach recipe in January. You want to be where people are. You want to do cozy things in the winter summary things. Mm-hmm. In the summer, sometimes I work a year ahead. Yeah. I just had a recipe for a sheet pan chicken, of course, with <laughs> sour cherries. And I did that recipe 
July 2021 when I could get sour cherries, yeah. knowing that you can't develop a sour cherry recipe in the same year because the season is so fleeting. So last year I thought, what am I going to do You know, next year? Um, I should have done it again. I should have done another sour cherry recipe this year, but I didn't. Yeah, what, what, so. what are you looking at for 23 right now? Is there something in the hopper? You know, um, I should be actually. Um, I should be. You know, what are the really seasonal? Most things you can get. It's funny. Sour, fresh sour cherries yeah. are a rare thing that you can't get. Um, like rhubarb for a while was really. Now you can get forced hothouse rhubarb pretty much all year long. Yeah, you long. can find those in uh, find specialty it. stores or expensive stores. But yeah. yeah, I used to do that with rhubarb. I do rhubarb recipes a year ahead. Yeah. Um, like corn, you can get. You can definitely get corn, even if it's not so great. You can get tomatoes. So it's really only a few ingredients. Are you at the uh, Grand Army Farmer's Market quite a bit? As often as I can go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but so, yeah, I'm always working on several recipes at the same time. And um, they're what I eat for dinner. And sometimes I'll think, oh, my God, this is like I'll just be cooking something, you know, from whatever yeah. I have. You know, yeah, you just buy stuff and then you cook it. Mm-hmm. And if it tastes good, I write it down. I'm like, okay, idea for recipe. And then that becomes a starting point of a recipe testing process, which then takes – a minimum of three times, but can often take like, you know, 15 times. Yeah. Depending. Is there like a product that you've really been dwelling on recently? I mean, I, I, I think about like Impossible Burger had this moment like 18 months ago where everyone was like talking about Impossible, this and that. Is there something like right now that's on your mind? A product? Yeah, like a product or or some kind of – or a condiment. Yeah, okay. I'm obsessed with this new condiment. This is really funny. So um, a friend of mine represents this uh, – it's, how do I describe it? It's like a vegan fish sauce. It's called Yondo. Yeah, cool. Do you know it? I, I know. I know. I know the category though, and I know it's in a very emerging category. It's it's like pure umami. It's yeah. just it's like liquid. I mean, it's basically like I mean, I think fish sauce adds so much umami. I love to use it in non traditional ways, and this is a vegan version. It's just vegetarian it doesn't have and it's it's um i don't know if it's yeast est- extracts the same way that i love nutritional yeast like, oh it's, i love nutch so much yeah it's a great product it's that same just savoriness so i got a, to everything now <laughs> i love it i got a uh, mushroom based fish sauce from the noma crew they sent me a bottle of that and i think so it's mushroom based the ones i've had that yeah, I mean, I think that so. Okay, so I guess the category would be vegan fish sauce, like or just enhancers. I mean, and again, um, there's no reason for it to be. Like, I mean, I'm happy to use fish sauce, but sometimes you don't want that slight seafood flavor. Like, you just want a cleaner yeah. umami, and it's it's just amazing. I made a green beans. Um, I was cooking just green beans with a you know garlic dressing, a little rice vinegar, which I make all the time. Yeah. I just added a few drops of it. And it just transformed it into, as my daughter said, she's like, I still don't like green beans, but these are the best green beans I've ever had. <laughs> is your daughter uh, a cook? Does she does she want to follow in your footsteps a little? No, not at all. Not at all. Um, cool. But she does make the, our family salad. I've been training her since oh. she was eight. And so now she is she knows how to make our every night salad. Ah, so is it a vinegar-based uh, dressing or a, a lemon citrus-based dressing? A lemon, yeah. So, you know, she does it. Sometimes when I do it, I'll add garlic because I like garlic in the dressing. But when she does it, she does just lemon, olive oil, salt, and pepper tossed mm. right in the bowl with her hands. And it's and she's got it. it she's got it perfect. Does she Absolutely. know how to clean the – wash the greens too? <sighs> yeah, we're working on that. <laughs> <laughs> the worst part about the salads. The worst part about the sal- <laughs> I, I wrote in one of my cookbooks. I can't remember which one. I was like, if you ever want to be a really good house guest when someone invites you to stay, wash all their salad greens it's- and put them in the fridge. <laughs> 
so it, yeah, put them in the fridge and then bring them out and like, bring them out at the right time and be like in charge of the greens. Yes, so helpful. So helpful. Usually guests are not helpful. They're, they're, they're nice people, the guests, but they're not helpful. Well, you know, you want to have somebody to chat with while you're drinking wine and making dinner. So that's what they're, that's they're, their they're job. They're their moral support. Okay, so dinner in one. Um, I've had it for a little while, and it's been so great. Like, I really, I made the caramelized carrots with pancetta, which was like a main that I brought out. And people were like, wow, like carrots for mains. Like, not really my normal jam, but mm. I just really love it. Tell me, uh, this book, what's the, what's the uh, dinner in one? What does that mean? Dinner in one means dinner, like one pot meals, one pan, one skillet, one sheet pad, as you know. I love a sheet pan. So the idea is um, I took the concept of dinner changing the game and I streamlined it even further. I made it even simpler, but I kept the basic idea of you can make dinner quickly. I mean, most of the recipes are under an hour. Mm -hmm. Many of them are under 30 minutes. So this is something that you come home from work. You don't want a lot of cleanup, but you want big flavors and you want something delicious and so this is your this is going to be your go-to weeknight cookbook um but the thing that i did in this book that i really love is that i i mean i oh so what uh, define a to me a one-pot meal like what is a one-pot meal it needs to have your vegetables and your your starch and your protein it just needs to be the one thing you eat you shouldn't Uh, need to have anything else with it maybe a salad especially if your kid is making the salad and then you (laughs) don't have to do it right so it's your one-pot meal um and w- the one thing I did for every single recipe was I figured out ways to either add more vegetables, so I, a section called Veg It Up, mm-hmm. because all I, I often want to just add more veg. I want mm-hmm. you know my protein, but I want more spinach or tomatoes or cu- whatever it is. So Veg It Up, and then or to take the same recipe and take out the meat, and so to create a vegan version or a vegetarian version um, for as many of the recipes as I it's could. It's very modern. That's what you need to be because that's right where now. Yeah, yeah, that's where we all want it. We all want to eat more be. vegetables and less meat, right? So this is a book to show you how to do it practically. And and also you can change your mind about what, like sometimes you want to eat more meat. So it's very flexible in that way is that you're in charge. You can make it more veg or more meaty. It is up to you. Then is there a recipe that you worked on so hard that you feel like this is the one that is like the grail of the book? Like this is the one that you really sought out to achieve and it's there now. Okay, so is there a harissa chicken recipe? I'm maybe looking for that. You're looking for that, right? Yeah, I'm looking for that one. Um, I mean, there is, there is, I mean, okay, so on that note, there is a simpler chicken potatoes. So there, um, do you know this Italian chicken dish? It's like chicken, oregano, garlic, and lemon. And it's just like a, like a lot of Italian grandmas made this. Wow. It's like clams oregano, but with just chicken. chicken. Yeah. yeah. And so this is a dish that I've had many times um, in many different, you know, Italian-American houses, like, right? This roast chicken with this a ton big of garlic. Oregano. Big oregano. Yeah. Like dried oregano, right? And it's yeah. like lemon and garlic and olive oil, and it is always delicious. So I took those flavors and I um, added capers and potatoes and made it into a sheet pan meal. And it's just like so satisfying. So that is a, a similar type of flavor profile to the harissa chicken, easier. Let's not hide from big oregano. Let's not do that. I hide from big oregano? No. Oh, I Some love big Some people do. Oregano. People like don't like too much oregano. It's too Italian for them. Oh, really? Some I people. I don't know those people. Yeah, those people I've are crazy. I've never met those people. <laughs> uh, it's a flavor. I, it's not like it's not like fennel, which is like super polarizing. But I think oregano can be quite polarizing to some palates. Interesting. I think you know. I mean, that's a whole cilantro question too. Yeah, it's just just like the, I think those big those big kind of mint based herbs. Do you dine out at all? Yeah, okay. um, but not that often. Not that often. Uh, no, we really like to eat at home. 
obviously you're always on the clock. <laughs> you always have to impress me. But let's talk about New York dining because I, I just wanted to get, uh, you know, just to give, give some shouts to any New York spots because I know a lot of our listeners like come to New York and they'll be coming in the fall, hopefully, and saying hi uh, to our wonderful city. Uh, are there restaurants that you're really loving right now? Um, well, last night we ate at Gage and Tolner in Brooklyn. Yeah. And that was, you know, that was a childhood restaurant of mine. I ate there when I grew up. And to have it just redone the way it's redone is right. so wonderful. Downtown Brooklyn. It's fantastic. It's and it's a just cool it's spot. a steakhouse and you yeah. know, so I got to eat I don't we do not eat a lot of steak anymore, so that was a big treat. Yeah. Um I also just recently went to King, where I hadn't been in a while in the West Village, which I love. Um one of our neighborhood favorite places in Brooklyn is called Lalu. It's a little wine bar. It's yeah. really simple Lalu's but just cool. delicious. God, there are so many. So many I I, there's, I have so much joy going to restaurants because also I need ideas. And if I don't eat out, I don't get ideas. I need to eat. I need to read cookbooks. I need to eat out. I need to, you know, just be looking for things. Um, because if I just ate my own food all the time, I would just, you know, do the same recipe. I, I try to always push the envelope. And eating out is one of the you ways need, that like, I get You need, like, mood boards. I do need mood boards. Yeah, shout to Claire uh, DeBoer from, from King. I went to her place, Stissing House Upstate, and it's amazing. So I love King. Yeah, I mean, and, um, and you know, and Jess, her partner. I mean, it's just. Really good. Yep. Good calls. Okay, we've given some space and years from this thing that happened. You did a recipe, a John George recipe you, you, you really it's his recipe and it was a guacamole with peas and you know don't need to relitigate the guacamole and peas thing but i would like to find out about when you real when did you realize president obama had actually tweeted about a recipe oh that you oh my god that was a terrible day <laughs> i'm sorry i don't want to relive terrible things it, it was twitter is horrible twitter it, twitter was horrible back then i mean still it still is. is horrible but i was more invested back then so i get this call from my editor it's like okay we have a problem so the background to is that um, Jean-Georges um, Von Grichten, famous, fantastic chef, right, created a recipe with his sous chef at the time um, at a restaurant called ABC Cochina, which is in, you know, Union Square, right by the farmer's market. And it's farmer's market-inspired Mexican cuisine. It was his personal take on it. And so one of the things that he did was added a green peas to guacamole. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, why did he do it? It adds sweetness. It helps preserve the color. Yeah. So you can make it a, a little bit more in advance because you know how guacamole goes brown so quickly, right? So this gives it a brighter color. Melissa, there's so much logic to this, okay? So like let's – like you think through everything. Like it's – there are – there's a reason to put green peas in guacamole. Absolutely. But people really, really don't want to hear about green peas in guacamole. Everybody got mad at me. And I didn't even write through – it wasn't even yeah. my recipe. I reported on it. It was a reported you were story. You reporting. Don't I was report. Don't kill, kill the, the messenger, messenger. But yeah. yeah. That's so it. yeah, people got really mad um, and both – you know, George Bush and o- President Obama both uh, actually commented on it. They both tweeted, yep, and they, neither of them were fans. But I will say something about Obama's tweet. He said guacamole should only have avocado, onion, and garlic. Bum, bum, bum. Guacamole doesn't usually have garlic. Yeah, come on. So Berry, I was like, I was like, all right, all right, dude. You know, you're putting garlic in guacamole. Can I just put the peas in? <laughs> Wonderful man, great president. Uh, garlic is a no-no. Raw garlic? He didn't say. He just said garlic. Okay. Well, maybe garlic powder. I could see that happening. Maybe. No? I mean, you know, honestly, I'm not a purist when it comes to anything. I think if it tastes good, you can put a lot of things in guacamole and it wouldn't make me mad. But it's not my – I mean, here's another thing. So it's not my cuisine. So I don't – I'm not as attached. Like how do I feel if people – how do I feel about rainbow bagels, you may ask, right? Like, Like, you know, I mean – 
I'm actually fine with rainbow bagels. I'm fine with all, I, I'm I'm fine with experimenting with any kind of food as long as it tastes good, and as long as you respect the tradition. So that's you know I'm good. You can do whatever you want to the kreplach. <laughs> take the matzo ball soup and make it your own. That's fine. Yeah, put some foie gras on it or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Bacon. It's good. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I know. On that note, will you write a Jewish cookbook, like a full, like, throated Jew- Jewish cookbook? I don't think so um, because, I mean, I grew up very reform. I, I identify as really New York Jew. It's very specific. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I mean, of course, there's a cookbook there. There could be a cookbook there. Um, but I don't know that I want to write it. I don't know that mm-hmm. it's— uh, I, I, so many people have written yeah, books that's like that. I was so, I mean, there's so many amazing books that already do that. I don't know that I need to add to that. Uh, it's thank you for being honest about that because I, I think like you know some folks would be like, oh, I'm a, yeah, maybe yes, but I think you have a really clear vision with your book pr- projects and your program. So what what is a book that you want to work on? Well, so um, I'm working on a memoir. Okay, so great. Let's so go So that there. is, yeah, that is something that it's, and oh my God, it's so hard. So <laughs> yeah, obviously it's hard, but I, I didn't think it would be quite as hard, okay. you know, um, because I've written a lot of personal narrative before and I've written a lot of stories before and my column at the beginning was very personal, but this is different. This is really a different kind of thing for me. Um, so I'm struggling with that. So that's in the works, but that's going to take a while. Uh, <laughs> How much is done? I mean, I have so many words, Matt, but yeah. they're not good yet. They're not good yet. <laughs> thousands and thousands of words yeah. I need to get better. So, But, you know, writing is editing, right? Exactly. And, and it's stepping away from the project for weeks and, you know, doing your doing a, a great recipe and stepping back into the memoir. Exactly. Makes a lot of sense. Um, and then I'm also working on an exciting new cookbook project that I am so happy about. Great. Um, it's it's um, a big, huge um, teaching cookbook that's designed for – beginners. Um, well, I mean, really people of all levels. Yeah. But what, so what I've noticed with people is that people, a lot of cooks don't have confidence to go off script, right? They follow the recipe exactly. And when they want to, you know, improvise, they're not sure where they can. They don't know the rules. They don't know which rules they can break. Right. So the next book I'm working on is every recipe is going to show, tell you which rules you can break so you can make the recipe your own. Everything from the, and And the recipes I'm choosing are the best of their kind. So I just tested, I think, 14 different banana breads. And I'm like, okay, this is my favorite banana bread, and this is why, and here's my recipe, and this is how you can then – turns out you can change it in so many ways. And having cooked through all of them, I know exactly which ways you can do it. So swaps and substitutions is the biggest challenge in cookbooks because it sometimes just isn't articulated. But the idea that you're breaking rules, that sinks in a little bit for me. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. And it's – because you just you know you really have to deconstruct something and understand how it's put together. You got to look under the hood. You have to see how a recipe is put together. And so I want to show you the seams. I want to show you what you can do and what you can't do. There are certain things you can't do. Can banana bread have chocolate chips? And can banana bread have lemon? Yeah, of course. Okay. Yeah, that's all fine. But the structure, right? So the structure. So, for example, um, can I just be geeky for a minute? No, let's go. <laughs> so Absolutely. The, so the structure of a banana bread, right? You have you you have a certain amount of moisture that you need, and some recipes use all bananas. Some recipes break it out and use sour cream and some bananas. Some use mm. yogurt. Some use more oil. Some use more eggs, and each one has a, you get a different, a slightly different result. So. 
first of all, you have to pick which result. You have to understand which result you're looking for. Do you like a banana bread mat that's um, really, really damp and moist on the inside, or do you prefer one that's a little cakier and lighter? For me, I'm more moist. I'm glad you're going to psychology side of this. Like your parents, this is great. You're asking these questions. But I, I, I go more moist. It might be my Midwestern upbringing. I feel like I'm just in that zone always. It could be like processed foods that I ate as a kid. I right. think I'm moist. So super damp. Definitely. Okay, so then your banana bread is the one with all the bananas. Don't yes. you, you don't need yogurt. You don't need buttermilk. You don't need, you just need all bananas because that will give you the most compact, moistest, most dense cake, mm. right? And so in my recipe, the way that I'm going to tell the story of the banana bread is you here's you can if you want it a little lighter then you add the, a little bit of yogurt you know and these are the ways you can change it or you add the sour cream um and then the sweetness level like how sweet do you want it you need a certain amount of sugar for sweetness what's the least amount i mean not for sweetness sorry for structure mm-hmm. sugar also gives structure aside from the perception of sweetness what's the least amount you can do to achieve this structure but not have the overpowering sweetness so exactly. it feels a little bit more neutral to savor even exactly what's the least amount you can get away with but then there are people who like it on the sweeter side so just giving the range the different kinds of sugar brown sugar okay but my the trick is to give a ton of information in a streamlined easy way that is easy to digest that is not overwhelming because you i don't i also want you to just be able to be like all right can you just give me a recipe for good which is the best banana bread okay this one here then this is where you follow this recipe so you have multiple prongs for each of these kind of core recipes the trick is going to be designing the book so that you can have all of this information without yeah. it looking heavy and ponderous with it looking light and fresh and like oh my god i can cook this and i can do it the way i want to do it Melissa, so, i can't wait for this to come i out. know it's gonna be i mean i'm really and writing it is really fun because yeah. it's just i mean i just get to i get to geek out and do 14 banana breads um but really the design thing is going to be like all right how do we do this do you have a big team that you work with on the recipe development side I mean, I have, I've always had a recipe tester who, different people over the years, not many people. I mean, I've kind of, you know, generally try to work with one person at a time because they, there's continuity in our tastes. Completely. Um, so right now I have somebody who comes once a week and helps me with my New York Times stuff and my cookbook stuff. But for this project, I will be taking on, luckily, I have kept in touch with all my former um, recipe testers. And so um, several of them are looking for work. And so it's like a big happy reunion and we all cry when we see each other because it's just so nice how fun I will, like, well, we'll, we'll wait for that to be announced I can't wait to, to, to check out the book we ask all guests on the Taste Podcast if you could write a dream cookbook or food culture book without the burden of time meaning you'd have no deadline or budget meaning you'd have unlimited resources what would that book be? It's the one I'm working on. I okay. just wish I didn't have a deadline. I wish I had un- <laughs> <laughs> if I could just have if I could have more time and more money it could be even better but deadlines are lifelines, right? And I I will have a deadline and I will get this yeah. book out and it will be real and hopefully it'll help a lot of people cook really, really great food. I'm so excited about that. Thank you so much, Melissa Clark, for joining the Taste Podcast. Thanks for having me. Eliza Barbanel, you're on the Taste Podcast. Hello. Hi, how are you? It's great to you know see you in the studio. Headphones on. Headphones are on. You've been helping out at Taste. You're a contributing editor. You've been editing so many of the stories that we publish. I love working with you. It's been really fun. It's been really fun. You're my favorite and only person that I talk on Slack with. <laughs> <laughs> I'm your only Slack. Uh, uh, yeah, I actually don't speak. I speak to Alora, but not too many people in Slack these days. But I wanted to get in touch with you and, and have you in to talk about this piece that you wrote, which I, I loved working on it with you. 
you pinpointed a new trend that you're seeing in the in the world of restaurants. The McTorta moment. <laughs> right, that's what you said, though. The McTorta <laughs> moment. So let's talk about the McTorta moment. What is happening with chefs and fast food nostalgia right now? Well, I would say, you know, who isn't nostalgic for fast food? It's probably not a new trend, but recently I've been eating out at restaurants and noticing items on the menu that are very clearly inspired by McDonald's in that there is not only a Mick on the front of it, but the (laughs) construction of the dish is is calling back to something that um, the chef and probably a lot of diners have had on a dollar menu before. Yeah, so there's definitely evokes like familiarity. It's like the, the dollar menu. But it's also, there's something about the timing, right? Like, we're coming out of the pandemic. Maybe, maybe I, I don't know. What do you think about the timing of this? I think it's definitely a part of a, a comfort food trend. You know, we talk about um, Blooming Onions, mozzarella sticks, all of these kind of nostalgic comfort foods. And I know myself, when I'm going to these restaurants, um, in the piece I talk about Angry Egret Dinette in Los Angeles that Wes Avila is doing. I was there with my parents where I grew up a couple months ago, and I I saw the McTorta on the menu, and it was, you know, everything that you want out of comfort food. It's melty and cheesy and greasy and such a more comforting breakfast Mm. than uh, Greek yogurt, I think, ever could be, (laughs) (laughs) even though that's my go-to. Yeah, yeah, I'm a a, a stand myself, but I, I do like when you indulge on breakfast or go big having, like, that melted cheese moment with a sandwich. Yeah, definitely good. Um, And also in Brooklyn, where I live, Bonnie's is Calvin Ang's Cantonese American restaurant. And they have two dishes on the menu. They have a char siu McRib and also a filet of fish that is more of like a uh, fish ball in terms of the flavoring and texture. Um, So that's not just breakfast, but it is, I think, these chefs that are, um, you know, enlisting the pull of something that is familiar and comforting to get diners to order those items and come into the restaurant, which I think is, uh, you know, a pretty good bet right now. Definitely. I think having a Char Siu McRib on your menu, it's like definitely made for the internet. There's probably like definitely, I, I haven't like looked at Instagram for Bonnie's, but it seems like that's probably something that's being shot and written about. Oh, yeah. Calvin said it's the most popular item in the restaurant. It has been since they opened. Um, I think that you see it and you know, you instantly know some idea of what it's going to taste like. And when yeah. I was there, it was on basically every table in the restaurant. I, you know, not to brag, but I've deleted <laughs> TikTok from my phone. So I can't say that it's on TikTok. You're off. <laughs> but I think it probably would be on TikTok. Yeah, you're off the talk. I appreciate that. I respect it. I'm still on. Um, I'm looking at airline TikTok. That's my thing. Airline planes. Old planes. Old planes. Yeah, I sound like a World War II vet with that. Like, I'm looking at old antique planes here. Yeah, um, okay, Grandpa. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So what's the what's the barbecue sauce like on this McRib, uh, Char Siu McRib? Is it Because I think of the McRib, it's like all high fructose corn syrup and sweetness and not much acidity in the, on the McDonald's version. Yeah, you know, it's, it's been a long time since I've had the McDonald's version, <laughs> so I don't, I would not venture a one-to-one comparison. Yeah. But it's very... <laughs> glossy and sticky and there is definitely sweetness going on but that five spice I think is is doing a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of that flavor okay let's talk generally about fast food because I you know we're talking about this like elevated moment with chefs and and I'll link to the piece in the show notes because it's great but let's generally speaking do you have do you have some favorite fast food items I want to like get our, our top three the three yeah. of us yeah the yeah. two of us yeah. well I as I mentioned I'm from LA so yeah. I would have to say in and out um, number one. Even uh, though the fries are not good fries. They're terrible. They're absolutely the worst fries. It's such garbage. Sorry. 
yeah, garbage hurts, hurts a little to hear. Sorry, sorry West Coast. It's, yeah, it's okay. But <laughs> the Neapolitan shake is really great. Yes. The fact that you can get griddled onions and that animal sauce on it. Yeah. Really great. Also, just all over the state. If you're driving, your odds of finding one are pretty good. Number two. Oh, I want to hear your number one. First. Oh, so we're going back and forth. Okay, my your number, call. Okay, my number one is easy. It's it's the filet fish. Mm. I, I like to me the filet fish, um, which I have once or twice a year, uh, is a perfect food. I absolutely love cheese and fried fish and tartar sauce or whatever that is. It's not really tartar sauce. It's kind of more mayo based, but I love it. I, I love the filet fish. Yeah, when I was researching the piece, I I was reading all these. Articles. I'm not sure if this is speculation or true that it was created um, for for Jewish people that wanted to eat at McDonald's. Yes. Yeah. Um, and also, I guess Seventh Day Adventists or, or people in general that don't eat meat. But as a Jewish person, Ooh. I felt like I was missing out because I've never had one before. <laughs> You've never had one before. No. This is McDonald's on our block. Well, we'll go after like this. right here. It's right here. <laughs> okay. What's your number two or number three? I think you made it to two. So what's your other ones? Uh, my other ones definitely Popeyes. Yeah. Or Raising Cane's. I think both oh, of those. Yeah. I love a Texas toast moment that you can get at Raising Cane's. I love fried chicken. So uh, Popeye's, what's the, is it the biscuit or is it the chicken? What do you it's, think? It's the biscuit. Yeah. I, I don't really understand how it works when I order there, to be honest. Every time I've ordered at Popeye's, I've ordered like three pieces and biscuits on the side. And when I open the box, this happened to me recently, there's anywhere from like three to 14 pieces of chicken. Yeah. I don't know what's up with the ordering. But They're doing like halves and quarters. And yeah, I, I get what you're saying. I've, I've, de- I've definitely. It's a delight to get more chicken. Definitely. You might have just, they might have just been being nice to you. I think that's what happened, yeah. (laughs) Have you ever thought about the biscuit? If you eat it upside down, it's better because the way it hits your mouth, if you hit, you got to have that bottom part, you know. You flip it up 180 upside down. Yeah, yeah, 180. Oh, that's why I eat like all burgers actually. Yeah. Because the top bun has more stability. That's, I I agree. Like you have to, you're, you can't be stuck with the paradigm, with the confines of, of normalcy. You have to like think outside the fast food box. Often, right? Yeah, I was like, I think that is a fast food phrase, but I don't actually think it is. Think outside the bun is the one that McDonald's used, I think. Yes. Right? They were kind of playing out of that. Um, I'll give you more of mine. I have two. Um, the Shamrock Shake. Mm. Are you, have you had it? Yeah. Well, she was on year round. Like, why? Why are they only doing it twice a year? Because or, they sorry, know they know you're going to be extra ready for it. And if they had it all, it's like Girl Scout cookies. They could be making those year round, yeah. but they are holding us in a chokehold. They are. We haven't talked about Taco Bell yet. I was going to say Taco Bell because I'm not a big. It might seem like I'm a big meat eater based on my other suggestions, <laughs> but I actually most of the time would rather have a vegetarian option. And Taco Bell, I think, does that the best. They do. Um, have you been inside of Taco Bell, like maybe outside the city, like on a road trip? Uh, I've driven through the drive-thru of Taco Bell, but I have not been not through the doors. So they have these kiosks now similar to most fast food restaurants, and you can remix everything. I'm using the term remix. <laughs> probably not the right term, but you can actually hack Taco Bell tacos, and you can put 3X, 4X ingredients. Mm. They actually have a 3X, 4X. So for the bean burrito, if you do 3X cheese... Triple? Yeah. Wow. It's expensive but worth it. I'll say that. 
I feel like this is them knowing the fact that people are coming to them because <laughs> they've maybe been doing some activities yeah. where they want to have more food than normal or they have yeah. a weird craving and they're just yeah. saying, look, we don't want to have to deal with your requests. You can just put it in yourself. <laughs> Whatever you <laughs> – it's exactly – you don't have to like deal with like the nuance of like, are you sure you want to? Or there, you don't have to upsell either. It's like a kiosk is sitting right there. Yeah. Is it 3X or is it 3 Moss? <laughs> That's true. It's a good point. <laughs> 3 Moss is a good one. Okay, fast food restaurants um, that you've never been to, that you've maybe been marketed to, that you want to visit. Mm, Whataburger in Texas. Yeah. I've never been to Texas. Oh, I feel like that is a great call. Like, I've never been to that Whataburger. I've heard of the brand. Yeah. Huh. I I think it's like um, there was an era of of BuzzFeed Tasty era YouTube videos where they went to Whataburger and ate everything on the menu. Yeah. I don't know why that is what I remember, and I don't remember many other things that I should know, but I think that implanted in me the desire to go. It was probably a paid placement back in the day, and it, mm. it really has it yielded out a quite a quite an impression on you. What would you say? I would say, for me, I've never been to a Sonic. Oh. Is that, I, I, I've never actually tried one of these shakes that I get marketed to because I watched a little bit of college football, particularly the SEC particularly like Auburn games. I don't mm-hmm. know why. I watch Auburn games and like they have Sonic ga- uh, commercials all the time during them. And I and I guess the, the shakes are good. Yeah, I've been to a Sonic. I yeah. liked the shake. I'm trying to remember if the shtick is that they have people on roller skates because I did not experience that. But I did sit in a Sonic parking lot and drink a shake and I liked it. Yeah, it's, it's styrofoam, isn't it? It's styrofoam? It's the cup styrofoam. Oh, yeah. I felt bad about that yeah, for sure. Kinda, <laughs> yeah. Eliza Barbanel, thank you for joining. Thanks for having me. The Taste Podcast is hosted by me, Matt Rodbard. It's produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumber. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.